Well, grab a Bible and find the last chapter in Philippians, the last verses. This is our 20th week and our final week in the book of Philippians. Next week, we're going to jump into a new series. We're going to be talking about parables over the summer. Many of you are in Sunday school classes where over the next few weeks in the summer, you're going to be talking about parables. I didn't realize that until this last week. I got the new book out for my class, and I started studying. And in my Sunday school class, we actually talked about the parable that I'm going to preach on next week. And so basically, I just let the class lead the discussion, and I said I would put their name in the footnotes next week and give them credit for all the the good things I'm going to share with you next week. But we got a few more verses in Philippians to cover, and uh, we're going to look at verse 21, 22, and 23. There are some notes in the bulletin if you want to follow along. And let me just start off with a probably a very obvious statement, but something that I think is worth pointing out, especially after my study this week. The last three verses of Philippians are important. They are important. They're not just sort of add-on verses at the end where Paul's wrapping things up. They really are important, and they're worth taking an entire Sunday morning to think about what Paul says here. In the course of this series, I've had 11 different commentaries that I've read, and I've just read them a section at a time as we've gone through uh, our study of Philippians. And I was shocked this week in my 11 commentaries reading through them how little they had to say about the last part of Philippians. One of them, one of the 11, had an entire chapter on this last section of verses, one out of 11. Six of the 11 had a small section, a couple of paragraphs maybe. Three of the 11 had one small paragraph about the whole last section here. And one of them, I won't tell you which one it is up there, but one of them didn't even mention the last few verses. It just ended with verse 20. Philippians 4.20 was the last verse they had anything to say about. They didn't even acknowledge that these last few verses existed. And I was just a little bit disappointed. I've enjoyed reading through these books and studying each week. And I came this week and I thought, well, they just don't have a whole lot to say about this. But these are important verses. And there's a couple of ideas that are really important we're going to talk about before we read. And then there's one idea that's super important we're going to break down with most of our time this morning. So let's start with a couple of these ideas I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss the idea that relationships matter. When you think about your church experience and you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have got to understand that relationships matter really, really do matter. And look what Paul says in verse 21. He ends the letter just like he started the letter. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And if you look back to chapter 1, he starts off and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. He starts off greeting these saints, and he ends greeting them. And I just want to remind you that for Paul, these were not abstract church members. This was not like me writing a letter to some church in Mississippi where I don't know anybody, and I say, hey, tell everybody I said hi. This is Paul writing to his friends in Philippi. And when he says greet every saint, he's thinking about Lydia and all the people that made up her household, where he shared the gospel with them and he baptized them. He's thinking about the little slave girl who was oppressed by the demon. And he cast that demon out of that girl. 
He's thinking about the jailer and his family who late in the middle of the night were baptized and became members, charter members of the church in Philippi. He's thinking about real people, real faces that he really cares about. And I just want to remind you that if your idea of church amounts to, well, that's where I go and I hear nice talks and we sing nice songs and every now and then we get together and we eat. There's something really important missing in there and it's people, it's relationships. It's having people who walk side by side with you in life, who can encourage you and who can challenge you. Church is way more than a glorified book club where we just come together and talk about some book each week. Way more than some sort of civic organization where we just plan some nice things to do in the community or nice things to do for people in Africa who are in need. But part of your church experience must include relationships. And I think Paul's talking about that when he sends these greetings. It's not just a nice way to start and a nice way to end. But he's thinking about real people that he really cares about. I also want you to see that the gospel is powerful to change lives and to save lives. To change lives and save lives. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 22. And we're going to read it all in just a second. But look at verse 22. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And he made a similar reference back in chapter 1 where he talked about the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That's in chapter 1, verse 13. When he talks about Caesar's household, he's probably not talking about his family. He's not saying Caesar's wife and his kids. It's more of a technical term in the original language talking about Caesar's administration. So when he says Caesar's household, he's talking about the the people who run the day-to-day affairs of Rome who are making decisions and overseeing bureaucracies and maybe they've been appointed or maybe they've been elected in some way, maybe they've inherited some sort of position. But these are the people close to Caesar, close personal advisors, people in charge of leading different programs or ministries or whatever you would want to call them in the Roman Empire. And Paul says there's people in Caesar's household, in his administration, who send their greetings to you. They're saints. They're followers of Jesus Christ. And just so you're clear historically who we're talking about, we're talking about Caesar as in Nero. The same Nero who threw Christians to the lions in the Colosseum and burned them as torches in his gardens. And Paul says, hey, there's people in this administration who have heard the gospel and they follow Jesus Christ. The whole praetorian guard has heard about it has heard the gospel. And there's people with me as I'm in prison who are sending their greetings to you in Philippi. The gospel is powerful to change lives and to save lives. I read a great quote this week by one of the the commentators that I work through each and every week in Philippians, and he basically talked about how amazing is it that in the world superpower and the highest people in positions of power in that administration or that power structure, that government, you have people who are already bowing the knee to a carpenter from Galilee. Who would have thought that people in that position of power and influence and prestige and all of it would humble themselves to follow Jesus Christ? And part of the answer to that is the gospel is powerful to change people and to save people. And there may be people in your life that you think the gospel could never touch them. They're never going to respond to the gospel. Well, some of Caesar's, Nero's closest friends 
were followers of Jesus Christ, people high up in his administration. The gospel is powerful to change people and to save people. That brings us to the big idea, which is really kind of just a summary of the whole book of Philippians. And here it is. God's grace gives us reason to rejoice. God's grace gives us reason to rejoice. We've talked about the idea of rejoicing almost every week in this series. Rejoicing is worshiping with joy. It's worshiping with joy. Worship is an action. It's something that you choose to do. This idea of joy that we've talked about over and over again is an attitude that you choose to have. It's not just an emotion that sort of comes upon you, but it's a decision to feel a certain way, to think a certain way. And Paul says at the end of this book, the big idea, God's grace gives us great reason to be people who rejoice. And so let's just read these three verses and then we're going to talk about God's grace in the book of Philippians. Paul says this, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's that last verse that I really want us to think about this morning. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I think a lot of the commentators I looked at just sort of think of that verse as like a bow on top. Like, you just, you've wrapped it up, it looks pretty, just stick the bow on top. Or maybe for our experience as Christians, maybe this is like at the end of a prayer, you're just supposed to say, in Jesus' name, amen. And if you've ever tried to pray without saying that at the end, you sort of feel like you haven't ended the prayer yet, like it's just ongoing. We just tack that on at the end. And maybe Paul's just tacking this on at the end to just sort of wrap up the letter. But I think it fits perfectly with everything we've seen from Philippians, from chapter 1 through 2 through 3 through 4, as he's talking about God's grace in our lives. And the question I want to ask this morning is very simple. In the book of Philippians, what does Paul teach us about God's grace? Meaning, when he says at the end of this book, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, what does he have in mind? What is he hoping that would actually be with them? How does Paul, in the book of Philippians, talk about and define God's grace? And I just narrowed a long list of things that I started with down to six. And we're going to work through them this morning. What does Paul teach us about God's grace? Number one, in his grace, God pursues sinners. In Paul's idea of grace, that's wrapped up in what he's thinking about, that God pursues sinners. And I want you to flip back to chapter 2. And I want you to look at verse 5 down to 11. This is the heart of Philippians. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, and he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." That's the heart of what Paul's talking about in Philippians when he's thinking about God's grace. What he's saying is, Jesus humbled himself and became a servant, and he 
walked among us and he lived among us and he dwelt among us so that one day we could be with him. He came to be with us so that we could be with him. That's God's grace. We didn't pursue God, but God in Christ pursued us. And he humbled himself in that pursuit by becoming a servant. He even humbled himself, Paul says, to the point of death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. At great cost to himself, God pursued sinners. And this is a biblical idea all the way through the New Testament. Let me give you just a few verses that remind you of this. How many of you remember this verse? Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We talked about it for a year and a half. He came to seek us. We didn't go looking for him, but he came to save us. Look at the next one in Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did that while we were sinners, pursuing us. And John says the same thing in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10. You know, it's really easy to go to church, especially where we live in the Bible Belt in West Texas, And to be involved in church and to appear and to show up on Sunday school, maybe even coming to church on Memorial Day weekend, and to sort of have the idea that you're doing things for God. You're earning your way with God. That it's your goodness that is sort of keeping you in with God. And you've got to understand this idea of God's grace. Paul's hammering home in Philippians and he's saying, listen to me, God pursued you, you've not pursued him. Without God's grace chasing you down, you would have never had any heart for him or any love for him. He pursues sinners in his grace. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We can't pay him back for it. But that's what he does as a God of grace. He pursues sinners. And so when Paul says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, that's one of the things that he has in mind. This grace of God that pursues sinners even in their rebellion. Secondly, In God's grace, God initiates and he finishes our salvation. You see this all the way through the book of Philippians. And I'm going to show you some of the great coffee cup verses we've looked at, right? The verses you put on your mug, the verses you put on your camp t-shirt, the verses you share on your Facebook wall. I just want you to see this truth all the way through Philippians that God initiates and God finishes our salvation. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear. He started the good work in your life, and I am certain that he is going to bring it to completion. If you're a fan of the Texas Rangers, you know how great that verse sounds right there. Like, start something and finish it. Get a lead and keep a lead. Quit blowing leads. You've got to finish what you start or it's no good. There's no value in it. Paul says, listen, God's not only the starter, but the closer. And he always finishes what he starts. I am certain that he started the work in your life. I see fruit of that, and I'm certain that he's going to bring it to completion. No unfinished projects. Look what he says in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, another one of these coffee cup verses. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you read that and you say, well, it sounds like it's us to finish, up to us to finish. 
We're supposed to work it out. And then he comes right back around and he says, just remember, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You do have to work it out, not work for it, but work it out, what God has worked into your life. As you do that, you keep in mind, the only reason I'm working anything out is that God is at work in me, that I would will and that I would work for his good pleasure. He says the same thing in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. He's talking about this resurrection from the dead. I haven't obtained it yet. I'm not perfect but I press on to make it my own. And why do I press on? How do I do that? Well, Jesus Christ has made me his own. He made me his. He initiated the salvation and he is going to bring it to completion. And when Paul prays at the end of this book, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, he's praying for the grace of God that not only starts a work in somebody's life, but that brings it to completion. Okay, number three. In his grace, God gives us the perfect gift of righteousness. He gives us righteousness. And look what Paul says back in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it's the end of the school year, right? School's over. It's officially summer. And one of the things that happens at the end of the school year, at least where our kids go to school, is you have like a couple of weeks, a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks, where you're just sort of filling in some things. All the testing is done and all the grades are done. And so, you know, you get a note home that says, hey, we're going to have a water day. We're going to play in the water. We had a kid in kindergarten this year and he says, we're going to have a graduation for the kindergartners this year. We're going to have a food day. We're going to ask you to bring food. We're going to have this big party. And one of the things a lot of kids have been doing over the last few weeks is giving awards. Like we're going to have an award day. And you know, a lot of times we give silly awards because we don't want to leave anybody out. But I just want you to imagine a scenario in a typical classroom. Okay. Imagine you've got a whole classroom full of kids and you've got a teacher at the end of the year And the teacher maybe wants to give out something like the student of the year, like the number one best student of the year. Homework turned in on time, always respectful, always kind to other people, never talked back, just a model student. And the teacher's kind of looking through the classroom and the teacher says, this is the model student, it's clear. This is the one that was just the best, my favorite student all year long. And then maybe way at the other end of the spectrum, you've got another student, and I won't put any labels on them, but let's just say they were very disrespectful or they were very defiant or they were very not studious in their work and just sort of a problem, a thorn in the teacher's side all year long, just obnoxious and just kind of not a very model student, not the student of the year. And let's imagine you're the parent of the model student and you go to the award ceremony and they're giving out the awards and it comes time for the big award. It's time for the student of the year and you know your kid. You know how deserving they are of that award. And the teacher stands up and instead of calling your kid's name, they call this kid's name. And you've heard stories all year long. You know what he's done or she's done. I assume it's a he. It could be a she. 
You know what she's said and how she's acted and how rotten she's been and defiant and ugly and doesn't do her work and got caught cheating and on. You know the whole, all of it. And the teacher brings that kid up in front of the whole class and gives them this big award and how great they've been. If you were in that little ceremony, you probably wouldn't say anything because you're nice, respectable people and you don't want to cause a scene, but you'd probably be thinking two words, not fair, not fair. My kid worked hard for something like that and you're just going to give it to the one who doesn't deserve it. And if you're thinking not fair, you would be right. If you didn't earn that award, you shouldn't get that award. That's part of the scandal of what God does for sinners in His grace. You understand that? When Paul says in chapter 3, I don't have a righteousness that comes from the law. What he's saying is, I'm that kid. The troublemaker, the defiant one, the one who talked back, the one who disobeyed, the one who flaunted the rules, the one who made a mockery of the teacher. That's me. And yet I've been given the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus. The only model student who never messed up, who always did everything right. And even though I'm rotten, I've been given this gift of righteousness. And I don't deserve it. And I can't pay God back for it. And I certainly haven't earned it in any way, shape, or form. But that's God's grace. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we could become the righteousness of God. We as sinners get to have this exchange with Jesus Christ when we have faith in him, when we put our trust and our hope and our confidence in him. And our rottenness, our sin, is counted as punished in Jesus at the cross, and his righteousness is counted to us. And even though we're that rotten student who deserves no good recognition, we walk out of the end of the year program with this student of the year award. His righteousness is given to us. And when Paul says, I'm praying that the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with you, he's thinking about the grace of God that treats people like that, that treats sinners like that, that when they repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, they're given this gift of righteousness. Number four, in God's grace, God gives us purpose for life and hope in death. Purpose in life and hope in death. All of these ideas we're talking about are great. They should move you to worship. They should move you to rejoice. But if you're tracking along, you may be wondering or asking yourself, well, what does this have to do with me now, today? What difference does it make in my life? And here's one difference it makes. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Paul understood that if I'm going to live and God's not ready to take me out of this world, my purpose is Jesus. Following Jesus, honoring Jesus, obeying Jesus, telling people about Jesus, pointing people about Jesus, serving Jesus. Jesus is the point. It's not to be comfortable. It's not to have a nice family or a nice job or a nice house or nice anything. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with nice. I'm just saying it's not the point. 
Jesus is the point. To live is Christ. If God leaves me here on this earth, the point is Jesus. And maybe no one got this better than Jesus' relative, John the Baptist. Do you remember what John the Baptist said in John 3.30? He must increase and I must decrease. All his disciples were leaving him and following Jesus, and people thought that he might get an ego trip about it and be upset, and he said, no, that's the whole point. The point is not that they stay here with me. The point is they follow him. It's all about pointing people to him. And Paul understands that right now, one difference Christ makes in his life is that he has a purpose. My purpose is Christ. To live is Christ. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're in school or you work or you're retired. I don't care if you're married or not or you have kids or you don't or grandkids or you don't. A lot of money, a little money. Your purpose in life is Christ. Pointing people to Christ, making Christ known, making Christ look valuable to the world that needs him. To live is Christ. And then he gives us hope in death. To die is gain. And that's so countercultural, and it's so hard to get through our thick skulls that Paul says, if I stay, it's all about Jesus. And if he's going to take me out of this world, it's actually gain for me because then I get Jesus. It's not a tragedy if I die here in Rome. It's gain. It's victory. It's not something you need to be sorrowful about if Nero takes me out. It's something you should rejoice about because it's gain for me It's not lost. So it gives us purpose in life and hope in death. Number five, in his grace, God can restore broken relationships. Again, this is driving at the idea of what difference does this make in our everyday lives? How does God's grace impact the way we live today? And one thing you can't miss in Philippians is that God's grace can restore broken relationships. You remember the two ladies that he calls out by name in Philippians 4? Just look over at Philippians 4, verse 2. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. And in verse 2, he says, Euodia and Syntyche, I am entreating you to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. You know as well as I do that none of us really like conflict. And our approach, if we were in Paul's shoes to something like this, would probably just be to keep our nose out of it. Like, that's their business, it's not my business. If we did get put on the spot and we were asked to give some sort of advice or counsel, we'd probably say something like, look, you just got to learn how to agree to disagree. You got to just kind of learn how to coexist. You go to this class, you go to that class. Don't sit on the same side of the sanctuary. You just got to learn how to put up with each other. Like, just just don't cause a problem. And Paul's advice is completely different than what we would do. First of all, he sticks his nose right in the middle of it, and then he doesn't want them just not to fight, but he says, I want you to agree in the Lord. I want you to find real unity. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. That's not Paul foolishly sticking his nose in the middle of, of a fight between two different people. That's Paul trusting the power of the gospel. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got two people that can't agree, that can't, that can't get on the same page. Are they both followers of Jesus? Yes. We have something in common. Have they both been forgiven their sins? Well, then they ought to be forgiving people. Do they both believe that God has punished sin in Christ at the cross? Yes or no? Well, if they do believe that, why are they trying to take it out on each other? They don't need to be the judge. 
Paul understands the power of the gospel and the power of God's grace to heal and to change relationships. Last idea is this. In his grace, God promises a home for his people. A home for his people. Philippians 3.20. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't belong here, Paul says. Our citizenship is not in Rome, or it's not in Philippi, or it's not in any worldly empire, but it's in heaven. And from heaven we're waiting our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He talks about us being sojourners and exiles. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Sojourner is somebody who's just passing through. An exile is someone who is not in the place where they belong. He says, that's who you are. You're sojourners and exiles. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Can I make you a promise? Looking at this verse in Peter and thinking about Philippians 3.20. If you don't know that you're a sojourner, if you don't know that you're in exile here, you will never be able to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. To put it in Philippians 3.20 terms, if you think that this place is where you belong, you won't be waiting for a Savior. I know that every day you face dozens of temptations. And it's different for me and for you, but it's temptation. And I know that it sometimes feels like it's nonstop that it takes a number of different forms, that sometimes you just feel overwhelmed with it. Can I tell you one of the most dangerous temptations that you face and you may not even realize you face it? It's the temptation just to be comfortable here. And our brothers and our sisters who live in different places of the world, they don't feel comfortable very often at all, and so they may not struggle with it as much as we do. But we are so comfortable here. We have it so good here. In part, because there's been men and women We think about Memorial Day weekend who have given their lives so that we can live in this kind of place and we're grateful for that. We wouldn't want it to be different, I don't think. We wouldn't pray to be uncomfortable. You just need to be aware of the fact that we have it so good here, you may just be lulled right into the temptation to be comfortable and to act like this is your home and to store up treasure here as if you really belong here. And to follow the passions of your flesh as if you just really belong here. And Paul's calling us, just like Peter's calling us, to remember this is not our home. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. He talked about that in John 14. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and I will take you to where I am that we may be together. It goes back to that idea of Jesus pursuing us. I've come to pursue you. I've come to be with you so that you can be with me. He says, I am preparing your home, but this is not it, and you should not be too comfortable here. All of these things are what Paul has in mind with this very short, simple prayer that it's so easy to overlook, so easy to just pass over, but he's written this letter to his friends, and he ends with this statement, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of Jesus be with you. He's saying, I want the grace of God that pursues sinners to be with you. And the grace of God that initiates your salvation and that brings it to completion, I want that grace to be with you. 
He's saying, I want Jesus' grace, the grace that gives you righteousness you haven't earned and you don't deserve. I'm praying that that grace is with you. And I'm praying that the grace that gives you purpose in life and hope in death, that that will stay with you. That you will know why you're here and you won't fear dying because you have hope that it's gain. He's saying, I want you to know the power of the gospel and the power of God's grace to heal your relationships with other people. That you as forgiven people would be forgiving people. And I hope God's grace will be with you. The very same grace that assures us that God is preparing our true home. I want that to be with you. And as he's praying this for his friends, all of those things are running through his brain. And you realize, what is he praying when he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit? You realize all that's wrapped up in this book and this idea of God's grace, and you say, how could we not be people who rejoice? God, the God of grace, has poured his grace into our lives. How could we not be people who respond with worship and with joy? So to that end, let's pray together as we end Philippians. Father, we're amazed at your grace and your mercy. It is new every day. It is powerful. It is like nothing that the world has to offer, nothing that any faith or religion or or guru has to offer. Father, we agree with the psalmist when over and over and over he says that you are gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Father, I pray for the folks in the room that they would know your grace, that your grace would be with them and all of the things that we talked about this morning. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ and for the hope that we have in Christ. Not just for eternity, but even for today and for tomorrow and the next day, as long as you leave us here. Father, I pray that as a church, that we would be people marked by your grace and transformed by your grace and that when folks come here, that that would spill over into their lives. Father, be honored as we respond to you this morning as we've seen throughout the book of Philippians with worship and with joy. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.